Thanks very much um, for asking me to come uh, to speak today. Um, I'm really looking forward to getting some feedback. The material I'm going to be presenting um, is based on a book project that I'm currently engaged with. It's my colleague Bethan Evans at Liverpool University. And the intention um, in that book is to bring together different kinds of theoretical, empirical, and geographical and interdisciplinary work on fatness together in one place. And what I'm going to present today is an attempt to sort of summarise what I think we as geographers are bringing to this broader body of work entitled Fat Studies, or Fat Activism, or Critical Weight Studies, and so on and so forth. A whole range of titles are given to this um, body of work. So I'm trying to carve out exactly what I think geographers might have on offer um, in terms of, of, of developing um, this area of work. So I'm going to begin the talk by discussing um, in more detail the main tenets of what I fear are critical geographies of obesity and use it as a means to situate my personal and theoretical position in relation to fatness and obesity. I'm then going to offer three articulations of, of what critical geographies of obesity might look like, including work on obesogenic environments, work on pregnancy, and work on fat activism, which includes work I've done on dancing and also the Fat Olympics, which I've learned one of the uh, uh, members of the audience is also present at. So I'm kind of presenting these examples of what a critical geography of obesity uh, might look like. So as a geographer then, my interest in fact developed through PhD work on women's experiences of clothing consumption, and in particular engagement with feminist post-structuralist theory of the body. So as a feminist geographer, I'm interested in the sex specificity of what is termed the spatialities um, of the body. And what I mean by this is the physical space a body takes up, its form, its surfaces, its interiors. It also calls for attention to be paid to how bodies inhabit or don't particular physical spaces in public and private realms, and how this feels. Finally, I'm also interested in how bodies are represented in particular spaces, in art, in policy, online, and so forth. So my conceptual orientation towards what I've called here the spatialities of the body provides the basis on which to develop critical geographies of obesity. And I feel this is useful because it provides multiple dimensions with which to consider this thing called fat, the politics and presence of those bodies and politics. So for example, our book's considering um, the figuring of differentiated bodies from the past and recent UK obesity policy. It's considering the materialities of the body, the oozy, fleshy squeeziness of fat through works such as um, Jenny Savile and also fat activist poetry um, websites. Um, I've also become interested in the different ways that fat materialises through different technologies such as fat scanning calipers, um, mobile phones um, and so forth. Um, and doing critical geographical work has also provided myself and my colleague Bethan tools to critically interrogate, interrogate some of the frameworks that are used to understand obesity causation, for example, the obesogenic environment uh, model. So as geographers, then, I think we have a lot to offer in terms of how we're centering space, if you like, within these debates um, around obesity and fatness. So that's one element of our approach. Now, the second one that I want to spend a bit of time just introducing to you is the critical element of critical geographies of obesity. So I think for me, the critical approach in this work is significant. It offers an overt politics to the form and nature of engagement with obesity per se. So for me then, to be critical in this sense is not only to say something is wrong, but to question its validity and the practices through which particular kinds of knowledge is created, presented and disseminated. So therefore, it, it kind of allows for a consideration of the effect and affect of stating of particular knowledges around fat and obesity, and in particular, where that knowledge is disseminated. 
So, for example, in previous works that I've done with Beth and Evans again, we've looked at the effect of the weighing and measuring um, scheme of um, year six and reception children in English and Welsh schools. Um, and in the book, we also think about the varied politics and commitments of fat activism and size acceptance in ways that also call into question the privilege and ex exclusions present within that particular movement, not just kind of positioning it as something that is counter to a normative understanding of obesity, but actually looking at the difficulties that activists and academics have if they identify with, it, with those particular kinds of critical um, politics. And critical's always been a useful word for me also because it does provide some distance within geography from other work that goes on in the discipline, so-called geographies of obesity. You might come across that in some of the, the reading that you might do. And that tends to orientate around understandings um, of relation about causation between environments and bodies, again, through the um, obesogenic environment um, sort of hypothesis. So in, a, in a, um, the, the editorial that we wrote in 2009, which was our attempt to bring this critical work to the discipline, we said the following. It's quite interesting to look back. So, so given the increased focus on the environment, there's an imperative for geographers to question the politics of fatness, critically interrogating the drivers <coughs> and implications of the knee-jerk policies which unilaterally define certain bodies and place as fat, as fat and problematic. So we're working with this critical geographies of obesity in order to take on the discipline itself. And this has been an interesting kind of exercise in terms of how and where we present our work and how we're trying to build relationships with other colleagues um, within, um, within the discipline. Um, but I think it's been useful because it has meant that we've taken on these causat causative models of obesity and thought, well, if we insert our interest in the body, materiality and so forth, what might come um, into being? And particularly, this has really made us think about working with bodies that are inhabiting obesogenic environments, um, which are often lost within the technologies that are used to create them, i.e. through statistical um, packages. The second element of the critical approach is kind of summarised by a garden right quote that I always go back to. And what they call for is an ethical engagement with the ideology of the obesity epidemic that takes into account social and emotional costs and examines the extent to which the evangelism associated with the obesity epidemic is motivated by self-interest, aesthetic sensibilities, an unquestioned belief in the efficacy of science and a more generalised pessimism about young people. Bold statement here, but I've emphasised the word ethical here in order to highlight my commitment and, and my, my colleague Bethan's commitment to consider the ethics and politics of our academic, activist and personal engagement with fatness and people that are categorised as fat, obese, um, whichever word I identify with. And in some ways, for me, this does involve challenging, as Richard Allen Richard said in their recent book, debating uh, obesity critical perspectives. Critique for them is challenging how medicalised concerns about excess weight socially construct fat as pathological and morally inflected. But at the same time, I think what I've learned through engaging with this kind of work is the need to be mindful that for some people being obese, obese straight fat, can be difficult, painful, and that weight loss might even be a reality or a necessity. It's, it's that kind of balance between the two. So I think um, in terms of setting up these kind of two elements of a critical geography approach, so thinking about the spatialities of those fat and obese bodies, and also thinking really carefully about what critique does in this moment. I don't see it as something that closes down, but I do see it as important to how you approach the knowledge that you're producing or the people that you are working with 
um, as research participants or colleagues within the discipline. So I think there's a really careful job that needs to be done in terms of, of positioning. So what I want to go on to now then is to kind of provide three examples of what I think this critical geography of obesity looks and sounds like um, by working through these, these three examples. So the first one in, is what I've called placing fat bodies, a critical interrogation of the obesogenic environment. Um, the second one is working through pregnancy or what I've called interuterine fat spaces, the ultimate obesogenic environment increasingly being labelled as the uterus um, in terms of... Um, Epigenetic, epigenetic understandings of, of obesity causation, and then do a bit more of the sort of fun fat activist type of stuff, <coughs> the activities I've been involved with in terms of developing fat positive or fat accepting um, spaces. So in terms of the obesogenic environment then, and how critical geographies of obesity might interrogate this particular context, it's really important to think about the role that ecological models of obesity causation have become very popular in academic policy and popular imaginations of obesity. So central to this approach is the assertion that obesity is a modern condition and it's the result of living in these so-called obesogenic environments. So they're defined in policy terms as a range of social, cultural and infrastructural conditions that influence and abilities, uh, an individual's ability to adopt a healthy lifestyle, and the conditions refer to and draw attention to particular relationships that an individual obese or potentially obese person um, um, might have with particular activities or qualities of that environment. So it's things like the aesthetics and social qualities of an environment, such as cleanliness, crime, safety, physical layout, land use, provision of green spaces, and also the location of particular food outlets, leisure facilities, supermarkets, and so forth. And so these environmental explanations of the causes and solutions have proved really compelling for a lot of geographers and policy makings. And they do have strong residence with the field of medical geography in, in my sort of home discipline, because it takes account of context and composition of particular places and locations in terms of trying to explain causation and how bodies might come into being in particular um, ways. So it draws on what's called an ecological perspective um, and, it, and it uses this to address the causes of obesity and the relationships or interactions a body might have with those environments um, around. So Swinburne et al. in 1999 coined the phrase in their research, um, the sum of influences that the surroundings, opportunities or conditions of life have on promoting obesity in individuals. And it's important to think about the significance of this approach in terms of the timing of how bodies become fat, obese, or have the potential to change their body size. So what I think is really interesting is that there's an origin here, that fatness origin originates in some, in some way, not only in the body itself, but in those places and spaces in which um, they, they um, inhabit. It's interesting that words like exposure and toxicity are used to understand that relationship between a body and an environment. And it's also seen in a lot of research that inequalities and deprivation are used to make sense of how particular barriers are set up in environments. So what I think is really interesting is there are imaginaries created through the ways that assumptions are placed in this kind of research as to what causes or not obesity. So in particular, Physical locations within Britain, the US and so forth are identified, but also what goes on in those places and the assumptions about what those fat bodies or potentially fat bodies are doing 
are implied and not necessarily proved within a lot of the, of, of the research. At the heart of any identification of an environmental factor is what's called an energy balance model. And Pierce and Witten have explained this, that all factors that are external to the individual, including the social, political, economic, built, or biophysical spheres. A quote here also from Kirkintel about um, how they describe abysmic factors as anything. And I think the difficulty with this, with this is that there's a very long list of what these factors actually are. But the factors that, do, that, are, that are described as, as influencing causation are those which are seen to disrupt the body's natural balance. Again, there's a figuring of a particular kind of body that exists in a natural state is somehow tipped over an edge and then becomes or develops propensity to become um, obese. And it's kind of described and presented in, in this kind of model that you quite often see in obesogenic papers. So the body is basically a, a product of its biological relationship with its body, behaviour and environment. So it's related to the amount of physical activity you do and the amount of calories that you put inside your body. This is probably not new to you, but what's interesting in geographies of obesity is that this is taken for granted as a model that's then rolled out again and again. The critique doesn't necessarily function so well in that body um, of work. So what we see as, as critical geographies of obesity um, proponents is to bring critique to this. And then what is uncovered if you do bring a critical approach to this particular model of obesity um, causation? So what we're interested in is not necessarily how environments make bodies fat. I'm not so interested in this idea of causation and intervening in that, but how obesogenic environments make the fat body problematic. So it's not how obesity is caused to environments, but by having this environmental model makes fatness be seen or portrayed or understood as a problem to be solved, to be reduced. If we intervene in the environment, we take away um, the problem with fat. And I think, it, just as a, a, a comment, I think it's really interesting these environments are only brought into being through the bringing together of particular kinds of data. So they're not necessarily qualitative studies always that are done on the ground with real people. You know, bodies exist in this kind of work as body mass indexes, as categories according to gender, class, ethnicity. So what actually are these environments we're dealing with? And they also rely predominantly on medical understandings of obesity causation, as I said earlier, so in terms of calories and physical activity, um, and not necessarily about how bodies are inhabiting those kinds of environments. So I just want to make two particular kind of critiques of this model, just to bring to life what I'm talking about. And the first one is the notion of morality and how particular moral values around being a fat or potentially fat body are reproduced through this environmental um, model. And we feel that this kind of work is complicit in the reproduction of particular assumptions about who fat bodies are, what they do, what they're capable of, and then in terms of the quality of the environments that they're inhabiting. So here then, the, the production of the problem of obesity is a kind of combination of medical stroke scientific knowledges and so-called moral or common sense knowledges about what a fat body is and can do. So I've just put a few examples here of the different ways that I think morality is spatialised around fatness through this obesogenic um, type model. So these, this is a cartoon taken from, um, there's a series of cartoons um, in obesity reviews, um, a, 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 sort of a medicalised journal around obesity, and it was considered appropriate to have 
um, a series of cartoons called um, A Light Look at a Heavy Issue, as a bit of light relief for medical practitioners at the end of each journal issue. And there was a whole kind of series of letters about the appropriateness of it. That's a bit of a backstory. I mean, I'm using it here just to outline how particular mor moralities around what fat people do, how they relate to food and the environment they're in, how they're reproduced in particular normative ways. And similarly, as geographers, we're quite interested in what we'd call fat mapping and the way that statistics are used to categorise not just places, cities, towns, but whole regions, states, you know, parts of Britain. This one is a British one, that's a, an American one. It, you know, what does it mean to have the red light rushing where you are? Um, and I think it creates a particular moral geography of obesity prevalence. Of course, based on the BMI, which has a whole set of um, politics and critical engagements with, as, as in, in terms of how reliable it is as a measure of fatness stroke health. So it's important to think about how particular moralities stick to fat bodies, whether that be an individual level or this kind of broader geographical level um, at a state or regional excuse me, um, scale. So, it's a, so in terms of, of what we're doing, we're kind of thinking about these spatial representations of obesity. Um, one of the, the kind of um, consequences of this morality is that, is that this happens, and I've used this quote from the Anna Kirtland paper because I think it sort of summarises what is being done to fat bodies in this hypothesis. So in terms of morality, some people are impervious to bad environments, so some bodies are implied to not be affected by the obesogenic environments, i.e. the elites, who manage their bodies properly, while others are more fully constructed by their environments, poor fat people. Members of one group move powerfully through the world, determining their body sizes and health status. Others are pitiful stuck within and determined by the environment. And I think what I'm saying here is that I'm not denying that there might be issues connecting poverty or low income or other indices of difference in terms of ethnicity, sexuality and so forth with fatness and obesity, but that that labelling is used to categorise fat people as somehow in need of help, as, not, as fat as problematic and so forth and so forth. It's not really a social justice model of enabling people to improve their lives as far as I'm concerned. I think it tends to label and moralise without doing that other um, important work. You can disagree with me, but that's, uh, that's what I'm kind of thinking. And the second kind of... Um, I'll just go back and look at that again. Uh, the second kind of element of the critique of the obesogenic environment um, uh, model is to think about embodiment and the bodies that are present in that work. It probably won't surprise you to think that, you know, to hear that I'm interested in that. So... In terms of how bodies are present in obesogenic environment work, it's interesting the use of BMI or bodies, bodily characteristics such as gender and so forth actually means that thinking, moving, feeling bodies are not present in these environments that are created. And if they are, they're done in a very kind of um, quantifiable way. So it might be that bodies are given monitors to wear so that you might get heart rates or you might get... GIS mapping of where people move, but in terms of qualitative work and participatory work with people that may or may not define as obese or fat, that is absent from most obesogenic work. Um, there's one example that I found that's really useful for thinking about the value of doing this kind of work in obesogenic environments is in Julie Guthman's book, Weighing In, and I recommend looking at the chapter she's got on obesogenic environments, where she actually worked with people that live in labelled obesogenic environments about what it actually is that is enabling or not people to, for example, take exercise or to access fruit and vegetables. 
um, or to maybe not commute to work in a car but use a bike. You know, and it's things like air quality, temperature. Um, it's not about how close they live to McDonald's. It's actually influencing how and why all bodies of all sizes can and cannot take part in physical activity. And that's just come out in a very small scale study. So I would, you know, I, I think that the next step in obesogenic environment research would be to actually go into these places rather than just create them through um, data. And also, I think, in terms of what you could bring to a beast-genic environment, it's really interested in embodiment, is actually specifically engaging with fat bodies. So, you know, actually working with people that self-define as fat or have been labelled as obese, in order to get these everyday type emotionally, few, um, uh, emotionally charged experiences of what it's like to be a fat body, in public spaces in particular. And I think by not fully engaging with how obese and fat individuals experience and narrate their bodies in an everyday context. Obesogenic environments are missing the trick here. They're not getting at what it actually is about being fat in these kinds of environments. And there's just one example that I think is getting closer to what I feel is missing from this obesogenic environment research. So this is um, taken from Stacey Bias, an American but British-based fat activist in London. Um, she has a great blog if you're interested in following this up. And even though she doesn't know it, she's a geographer. And uh, she's actually been doing a lot of autoethnographic um, and also participatory work with friends and, and other networks of fat activists around being fat in different transport spaces. So she's done a, a project on um, fat and flying, and she also has a blog about um, travelling around London. So what I think is really interesting about her description here of being on a bus is it opens up a whole set of other geographies that you're missing if you're thinking about obesogenic environment research. So here she talks about what it's like to be a fat body um, on a bus and, and the kinds of issues that are significant for her. So for me, things I've picked out that are interesting is that there's a bodily history of taking the bus. You don't just plonk yourself in this environment as a new body. You've done this time and time again. You know what it's like. So you deal with it and you, you kind of develop different strategies to protect yourself in these kinds of environments. I think her experience of being sized on the bus um, it's important to think about the past, but also other bodies. Often when bodies are placed in obesogenic environments, they're individualised. You know, but actually bodies have to rub alongside each other in all kinds of ways, um, in public and private um, spaces. So who sat next to her, who didn't, for example. The space, the physical space of the bus, its physical comportment on her body, um, the projection of people's attitudes, whether or not they existed um, in real life or not. And I think this is interesting because for me it's not a narrative about a fat body sitting in a bus, but it's how a fat body becomes fat by sitting in a bus. How that environment of being in a bus around other people in a particular physical location makes her body fat and makes her feel fat in a particular way. Not always in a negative way, but there are things here that I, I wrote down. I thought it was interesting that her body was squished, spread out, ignored, normalised, uncomfortable, and so on. You know, fat is not this BMI that's being reproduced in obesogenic uh, research. So, you know, please do go to look at her blog. So, I mean, for me, it's really thinking about the next stage of where obesogenic research should go. Right, so that's the first example. I'm going to really speed up a bit. Sorry about this. So, second example is stuff about pregnancy. And this is just kind of some early work that I'm, I'm thinking of developing. Um, and I, I was struck by the ways that pregnancy or potentially pregnant fat bodies are being positioned in recent policy and academic context. So 
Obesity in pregnancy is often linked to a range of risks to the mother and the fetus. Um, so in the 2009 Confidential Inquiry into Maternal and Child Deaths, uh, it reported that 28% of mothers who died in childbirth were obese, although interestingly the reports not comment on the cause of death. Then this kind of background kind of bubbling of pregnancy and fatness and, and how these two things come together. So in terms of how risk is presented and experienced, I would argue, by pregnant or potentially pregnant um, women, uh, maternal obesity is a risk to the fetus. So these are a list of some of the risks that are highlighted in terms of um, uh, being obese um, in pregnancy. Um, so high blood pressure, risk of induction. So it's not just about the body itself being at risk, but your labour and potential birth at the end is also at risk in terms of how obesity um, might, um, affect it, uh, might affect it. So risk before and during pregnancy is managed in a number of ways. Advising women to maintain healthy weights prior to conception, the need for pregnant women to eat balanced um, and nutritious food, and to refrain from weight loss or exercise regimes during pregnancy. And through the identification of at-risk women in early pregnancy, the BMI is taken at your 12-week appointment. And a BMI of over 35 can then lead you to potential consultant-led care, testing for diabetes, regular monitoring, um, and so forth. So I think you know, obesity is not just about the, the mother here, it's about the whole pregnancy. It's not just that one body, it's what that body potentially could become during pregnancy and the risk to um, the fetus, the birth, and, and so forth. And I guess the, the, the big field of work involved in this kind of um, relationship between obesity and pregnancy is epigenetics. And this is something that I'm just starting to, to, to read around. And here, the risk of obesity in pregnancy and prior to conception is premised on an understanding that the interuterine environment, so the internal workings of a, a female body, is the place through which the propensity of a child to become obese is set. So in terms of the spatialities of the body, to step back to critical geographies of obesity, the target does not become the town, the city, the target becomes the woman's body herself. So childhood obesity and adult disease is initiated by excess nutrition in utero, and the citing of this responsibility and the health of the fetus is precisely in a woman's bodily interior. And I think there's something really interesting then that feminist work around um, you know, reproductive rights could potentially bring to this kind of um, work. So um, uh, this is a quote from Barker, whose um, work is, is, is key to understanding the epigenetic relationships um, between what goes on in a, a woman's body and the, um, the health or weight outcomes of children and the future generations. And I put this up because, for me, it, it, the, the, the link of animals and women is, is, is not, I'm not able to not comment upon it. I think it, it, you know, it kind of shows a complete lack of, of understanding of, of, um, kind of feminist politics around women's bodies. Um, but it's the definitive way in which it's presented as, as the answer, as a way to understand causation in the same way that obesogenic environments um, are. So the idea that this particular relationship between women and their fetus is going to affect the materiality of the bodies that come into being, lead to less fat and more muscular babies in the next generation. So the womb, the uterus, is politicised here for anti-obesity interventions. And I, I mean, Deborah Lupton probably likened this to what she calls the new public agenda on motherhood, in which fetuses and children are represented as requiring protection from their own mothers, and the female body is represented predominantly as a source of danger. 
Um, and that comes up a lot, not just in this pregnancy work, but also thinking about the family and obesity causation. It's often the mother that is kind of presented as the person with most responsibility for the, 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 the health and weight status of, of their children. Maggie, uh, Megan Warren's work has been interesting in this. She looked in an Australian context about how these debates are being rolled out in popular media, and she refers to women as uh, smoking guns, that they're smoking guns for understanding the epigenetic relationship between obese mothers um, and their, their offspring. But I think there might be something else to think about in terms of, of how it feels to be an obese or potentially obese pregnant um, woman. And again, this brings in my interest in, in the bodies and do more participatory work with the people that are being um, kind of, well, I guess, reproduced within these kinds of um, policy. So um, I, I looked at a, a report entitled Maternal Obesity in the UK, which was written in 2010. And it was the findings from a national project, a survey of all kind of um, obstetric departments within um, a, a UK context. And they highlighted particular issues that were significant to think about in terms of obese pregnant patients. So they highlighted the inadequate provision of equipment for superly obese women, the need for specialist clinics and midwives for obese pregnant women, more regular weighing, and quote, women need to have more realistic expectation about their pregnancy and the need for increased valence and intervention. Now I think for me, all these factors will have implications for how women experience their pregnancies outside of being um, obese. And I think it places limits on what they can expect in terms of how they are treated because of their size, but not necessarily the health status of their body. I think those are two different things in this context. And this really came to light for me. I don't know whether anyone has seen the programme um, One Born Every Minute. You might have heard of it if you haven't seen it, which follows, um, each programme follows two or three mums as they go through, sometimes through pregnancy, mostly through labour and um, birth. And there was a, one particular programme that was particularly about obese pregnant women. And what really struck me about that was that was the way that these women were being talked to in particular ways by the midwives. And I'm not saying that these midwives were not doing this out of an act of care, but the way that particular knowledge about being obese in pregnancy was being transmitted was reproducing lots of these normative, potentially harmful understandings of fatness as bad, problematic, you are responsible, and so forth. So, for example, there was one example when a midwife was discussing the need to use a hoist in labour because you're too big, I can't pick you up. Um, in labour. And the voiceover just reiterates the statistics on obesity and pregnancy at the same time. And I just wonder whether there's something about the way that knowledge is disseminated in those consultation processes that could actually be affecting the pregnancy itself in terms of stress or, or the way that women are kind of um, relating to their pregnancy and their unborn child. And so I followed this up and looked at some of the posting boards of women that had watched this programme um, to get a sense of like how they were interpreting what they'd seen in relation to their own experiences of being an obese pregnant um, woman. Um, and so I've called this feeling the risk, because again, I think this is maybe missing from some of the obstetric-based midwifery literature I've been reading. It doesn't really seem to be thinking about what these women might be feeling at the time that advice has been given. Advice has been given. So this is just the story of one woman who's been classed as morbidly obese, that she was having extra scans and GDT tests, so to check for diabetes, because I'm fat, I'm harming my baby. The NHS studies show that obese mothers are proven to have bigger babies. I'm blamed, being blamed for anything. So it's just interesting how knowledge has been passed within those consultation moments to an obese pregnant woman 
in that she feels the risk in this particular way. So one way I thought maybe geographers might be able to intervene in this is to think about fat-friendly maternity spaces. This might be one way forward. So um, these are some of the, the findings, again, from this maternal obesity report. So inadequate provision of equipment. I mean, this might be something that might help, might make the experience of labouring in a hospital setting as an obese person a bit easier to not feel that they are the exception to the rule, for example. Um, Two-thirds of maternity units do not have access to wide trolleys, wheelchairs, beds or couches. Women need to have more realistic expectations, but all of the women in that programme ended up having vaginal deliveries with no complications, even though the programme was setting them up as potentially being those problematic um, pregnancies. So that's just something that I, I would quite like to, to, follow, um, to follow up. Um, and then finally, I'm just going to quickly move on to the, the, the last examples I wanted to talk through in terms of um, critical geography's obesity. And that is to talk about fat activist spaces. Um, I'm sorry I'm rushing through this, but I'm really happy to answer questions about um, any of these examples um, in, the, in the question section. So um, I want to just talk about this because of the research that I've done around what I've called fat accepting spaces or size accepting spaces, um, which I kind of loosely describe as physical settings actively promote and facilitate the acceptance of fat bodies and fatness in itself. So they're often physically, well, they have to be physically accessible and comfortable. Um, they're governed sometimes by legislation that upholds the rights of people. So in an American setting, where legislation for size discrimination is better set up in some states, that you would be protected in some ways in that um, in those spaces. They're spaces that might be created through performative interventions. So I'm going to talk about the Fat Olympics um, in a setting. Um, and it's also ways of making fat bodies be seen in mainstream settings, not in their normal way, i.e. with no head, for example, if you look on news reports. So I showed a slide earlier of what Charlotte Cooper calls a, fat, a headless fatty, because there's something really interesting about the moralities produced about a person when you chop off um, their head. So there's a whole range of kind of activities and politics behind what these kinds of spaces um, might be. And this first piece of research focused explicitly on a, on a space that um, is overtly about facilitating fat acceptance and, and love and attraction between fat people, but also fat people and their admirers that may or may not define as fat um, themselves. So I did an ethnography of a, a fat nightclub space in London called Large Life, and I attended the event, chatted to people. Um, there's a whole really interesting set of methodological issues here about my body size and how that matters in terms of my participation in those spaces. Um, which I'd be, again, happy, happy to talk about. But what I think is interesting as a geographer is to think about how size acceptance functions in situ in a particular location. So if you create a space that's supposed to do something, what actually goes on there? It might also be interesting to think about those spaces, how fat is being redefined in particular ways or reframed in ways that might then filter through to other kinds of more mainstream um, settings. But there is a caution here. Um, in terms of how you figure fat in relation to an admiring audience. And Sam Murray has written um, a lot about that, and particularly the way that fat activism, some fat activism focuses on being fat and proud, um, and whether, the, whether this idea that we should learn to love our bodies and make them visible actually creates a unitary sense of being fat that dismisses ambiguities about being fat, i.e. being fat, trying to be proud, but not quite getting there, you know, something as simple as that. So what is it about being fat and proud? What are the tensions and ambiguities within this particular articulation of fat 
um, politics. And quite often in the fat activist literature, this is talked about in terms of how, how you negotiate weight loss and being a fat activist, or how you negotiate having um, uh, surgery, weight loss surgery, with being um, a fat activist. So I just want to go through a few examples of how I think the ambiguities and tensions within, with, within um, fat attraction or fat admiration um, has, is, is reproduced. So in terms of dancing then, I just want to talk about um, how dancing functions. So I've just put up a, a description of my research diary here and I'll just talk you um, through what's going on. So in terms of the nightclub space, then it's a relatively small nightclub space with seats all around the edge and a dance floor um, in the middle. And this is my first encounter with the, um, the dance floor. And I think my first impressions was that it was a place for women to have fun and a good night out. Big girls having fun and women moving their bodies in relation to each other um, and kind of enjoying each other, touching each other, not necessarily in a way that was about being sexually attracted to each other, but just enjoying each other's bodies in ways that you wouldn't see. So for me, bodies were exposed, dynamic, touching, pressing um, and moving. And work in fat studies on dance has also talked about this as potentially liberating for, for women. But in terms of the liberatory potential of this, um, and the political potential, I, I felt that the fat-admiring male audience was, was operate, operationalising this male gaze that potentially was kind of operating that space for them rather than it being a place for women to enjoy their fat bodies in ways they might not have done in other contexts. So there's a tension there between who is this admiration for and who gets what out of um, it, it, um, going to these kinds of spaces. And in terms of admiring, I became interested in what that actually actually meant. And in terms of the kind of tensions around it, it was a heterosexual space, predominantly this particular club night I was going. And one man, I'll just talk about this one man, came up to Claudia's friend twice to ask her to dance. He was walking around the club looking at women, kind of being a stalker. And they described these men as stalkers that were kind of out to get the fattest girl on the dance floor. Um, and similarly, Another man talked to me about not telling his friends about going to these kinds of spaces because he didn't want other people to know that he was attracted to fat um, women. So I'm not arguing here that women were that men were acting in all men acting intimidating or disrespectful ways, or that women didn't like getting attention. But I think there's a danger within these kinds of admiring type spaces to sort of ignore gender inequalities that are reproduced. So you've got fat and gender intersecting here in ways that are just recreating these problematic relationships. But at the same time, you are creating a safe space where fat bodies and their admirers can come together in ways that they might not have done in other mainstream club settings. So it was, it was important to think about that, but also the potential difficulties of, again, asserting this idea of being fat and proud, fat and sexual within this particular heterosexual space. And the other example I just want to go on um, to is the Fat Olympics, um, which I was involved with um, a couple of years ago. Um, and I'm just going to talk just briefly about my experience of being involved in this. So it was a, a one-off fat activist event staged in East London in the run-up to the Olympics in July 2012, and the key organisers were Charlotte Cooper and Kay Hyatt. And it was set up in the context of living in the area under the shadow, as she calls it, of the Olympics, and the effect that that was having on local people, whilst at the same time drawing attention to fat hatred, fat discrimination, 
and the kind of tension between the kind of bodies that were seen to be appropriate in, in terms of the Olympics and the bodies that were occupying that space in that shadow. So there was a, a really interesting intersection between different sets of politics here, the politics around protesting against the Olympics and around fat hatred and also fat celebration. And it was a really lo-fi DIY culture type of event with um, stalls, events, music um, and dancing. Um, and I think there was a really important geography to the politics of the event. It mattered where it happened, i.e. in East London. It mattered that it was a place that was safe, for example, so it was kind of seen as size-friendly but also queer um, in terms of disability. It was physically accessible to whoever um, wanted to come. But it was also set up as to be protected, so the media were asked not to go. If they did want to go, they had to contact the organisers in advance. So it was, it was, it was set up in those, in those different kinds of um, contexts. And the intersections between those politics are really important. So this is how Charlotte described as the Fat Olympics. So basically it's fun. That's what I want to really get over. It's a kind of fat activism that is fun but with a really serious message that kind of was reproduced through those activities. So it was kind of set up almost like a school sports day with fun activities. You could run around getting dizzy, roll down a hill, twirl ribbons, spitting on the BMI. I'll talk about that in a second. Um, it was non-competitive, fat-friendly, queer... Um, bodged together, amateurist, unslick. Everything the Olympics was positioning itself, this was not. So there was a, a clever articulation of, of creating an, another kind of space through parody and playfulness. It's very different to the more organised, heterosexualised club space of large life. It's far more ephemeral and multidimensional. Just a few images. So this is um, an aerobics warm-up. And this is the um, torch parade. And this is, I don't know if any, any of you watched the programme Grange Hill, a, a, a British... Um, kids TV programme about um, a school, this was the actor that played Roly, the token fat kid in the, um, in the, in the series. Um, that's me doing the spitting on the BMI, so we had a BMI chart on the floor and people were encouraged to come and spit um, on the BMI as a way of kind of articulating your anger or frustration or dislike of that particular um, act, um, which I actually found quite liberating to be honest. Um, it was very much about bodily acts, again, um, it, it mattered that there were these bodies um, doing it. So this is um, Charlotte articulating what happened, and I think there's some interesting things to pick out here, that it's an alternative narrative. We're not saying, you know, it wasn't like about this is right, you are wrong, it was about something different. In the context, again, of these broader Olympic-type things going on in the area, but also the normative understandings of fat and obesity that a lot of the people participating in the group have had to encounter in their everyday lives for years um, and years and years. And it was wonderful, and I agree with to see all kinds of people taking on fat stuff, taking a stand against fat hatred. I felt really proud about that. Um, and it was, it is, you know, it was um, a, a really, I mean, for me personally, I found it a really empowering type event, particularly because... In an academic context, when you present this kind of work, sometimes you get a lot of antagonism and you have to start from a place of defence. Whereas in these kinds of spaces, you don't have to start from that because generally you're all sort of talking from the same um, point. Just a couple of other things. So there were stalls selling um, vintage plus-size um, clothing. And this was my stall, the Geography Massive. We were doing a Reclaim or Gym Knickers stall um, based on mine and Bethan's past experiences at school of having to wear pants to do... Um, PE. Yeah. Um, and again, this is just taken from the blog. You can have a look at yourself. This is just a list of the things that um, Charlotte describes went on on the day. 
But it's important to think about this as a one-off, as I said, an ephemeral type of activist event. And maybe there's something about legacies of it. And I want to just say something about the way it was reported in the mainstream press. Because although it was designated as a safe space, no journalists allowed, the Daily Mail sent undercover reporters to the event. And unbeknownst the organised, and participants took photographs and reported about it in, in pretty predictable ways for the Daily Mail. So, for example, the author wrote, the crowd is made up of men and women of all ages. Some of them must tip the scales 18 stone. There are also a few slim people who get to make their way in, possibly to get a dollop of that crumble. I mean, really nothing surprising here, but then it, it's really interesting they do that when, you know, in the context of the safe space being articulated, this is our space, and then they, they come in. And I wonder whether this ending to the event has had an effect on how the legacy has, has, has kind of maybe not taken on its full potential. It's a lot of effort to do this kind of work, physical and emotional, and for the Daily Mail to do that, I think it's a real you know, kick in, in, in the face. Um, so just a few reflections then, just in terms of where this might go. So um, I hope I've presented to you what critical geographies of obesity might look like. You know, from this more kind of standardised engagements with a, a concept, the obesogenic environment, to thinking about these fat activist type spaces or size-accepting um, spaces. And there's just a few, a few kind of um, reflections that might be useful to bring it together. So in terms of developing a critical engagement, I do find it difficult sometimes to know what it is I'm being critical of and how that, what the effect of making that critique does. So at the beginning, I think thinking about critique and about space, I always return to those two things. What do I want it to do? What becomes possible? You know, what can I bring to the table through my own disciplinary um, expertise and interests? Um, I think engaging with a beachgenic environment seems to be a really good place to start, especially if we think about what is missing from that kind of work. Um, I hope I've kind of uh, identified through some examples about what might be added. Um, I think it's really important that I've worked out, but I'm not really interested in what causes obesity. And I think that's maybe what makes me differ from some of my other colleagues within the discipline who are committed to the obesogenic environment model. And again, that, you know, I really need to think about justifying, well, where does that take me then? You know, what am I doing with fatness in my own um, research? Um, in terms of fat bodies, um, I think there is a need across a broad body of work, interdisciplinary work, to think more about what it is to be fat and the feelings and sensations of being fat and fat people's experience in a range of um, spaces. And the, the obesity um, pregnancy example might be a place for me to develop my feminist interest in how the internal workings of the female body are being politicised in particular um, ways. Maybe thinking more about size acceptance spaces, the ones that are more ephemeral, that fade away, and the more permanent type ones. I'm also thinking about online practices as well. A lot of fat activism exists online, and that's been really helpful for galvanising galvanizing particular real-life events, so I wouldn't downplay um, that. Um, in terms of the spaces of fat activism then, um, I think thinking spatially about being a fat body in space, so thinking about Stacey Bias's blog has really helped me to think about why it matters to think about those, the materiality of different bodies. Um, and also the role of humour and fun in making fat politics, but also the perils of doing that when you think about the, the Daily Mail um, penetration of this kind of uh, so-called safe space. And in terms of public health ethics, and I haven't mentioned today Health at Every Size, which is the more medicalised wing, if you like, of fat studies, which actually practice a particular model of, of health that isn't um, attached to weight. So it's really interesting things like intuitive eating and developing ways of moving bodies that aren't attached to fitness and monitoring um, and so forth. And 
I mean, I, I'm, there's a real tension within fat studies about whether this is too medicalised for fat studies and goes too far down almost towards the, the BMI area of medical type research. Or whether it's really interesting here to think about, it's not necessarily about the size, it's about how your size affects what you can and cannot do, or what, what is it enabling or not for you to do. So I know a lot of research in this area is interested in the role of stress and the effect of stress on metabolism um, and so forth. So I'll stop there. And um, thanks really uh, a lot for, for listening today.